It's October, and the red deer rut is well underway. The biggest, strongest males are vying for a position to pass in their genes. And as the leaves turn to the browns of autumn and the salmon push on upstream to spawn, it is as captivating as it is beautiful. We have spent the first few episodes focusing on people and our impacts on the uplands. But in this episode, we turn our attention more to the wildlife here. What role will they play in the future? This is the British Uplands podcast with Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, an exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes. Grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, grant to dig ditches, plants put on sheep, no grants for sheep, sheep come off. Oh, the uplands, they're burning the peat. If you hear a simple argument put forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that simple argument has to be wrong. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. (laughs) We are starting this part of our journey with our biggest land mammal, the majestic red deer. To see them in all their glory, Sarah travelled north of Inverness to a traditional hunting estate to meet deer manager Sam Thompson. But what we're looking at doing is potentially putting some native cattle on the ground. Um, and rather than, so deer and sheep are a selective grazer, they'll pick the plants that they particularly like. So the, the grasses will get left and they'll eat the heather in preference. Um, when you get cattle in, cattle are a blanket grazer. Cattle mm. will eat the grass and the heather. So that's like mowing a lawn. Right. So everything starts at the same level. Yeah. And in that situation, it, it will suit um, those, those sort of uh, more palatable species. So, how many deer do you have on this estate? Um, uh, so that's an interesting question. So we have quite a good handle on our red deer herd, especially in the open range environment, which is sort of what we're looking at here. Um, we we hold around six hundred hinds. Um, I would say red deer hinds, so they're female red deer, uh, and around one hundred and fifty to two hundred stags, just depending on the weather and the time of year and everything else. And how big is this area? Uh, so the estate is uh, just shy of 20,000 acres. Trees are now syno- synonymous with being better. Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think trees are, uh, it's, you know. They've won over well, public it's like, opinion it's like, it's Well, and it's like, you know, we should save the rainforest, we should save the whale. Mm-hmm. And whales are great. The rainforest, I'm sure, is great trees are great but you need the right tree in the right place you need the right deer population in the right place and at the moment there are lots of places that have reduced the deer population to increase tree cover um i think that's great good for them i I, you know i've worked in some of those places i've i've helped deliver that in in cases um and i don't have an issue with that what i have an issue with is is anyone dictating any sort of change on such a scale over such a large area without really any reasoning as to why that should be the case because we're not looking at a landscape that is barren or bereft we're not looking at a landscape that is a desert of wildlife or of biodiversity um 
this is an area where you know deer travel this particular um this particular area is, is well traveled by deer and you can see a, a variety of plants now you can't see certain species that's correct they're not here but they're also not in the middle of an arable field in fife yeah and there's species here that aren't in the middle of a um a rewilding project in the Cairngorms, and that's fine I, I i welcome that that jigsaw that is the scottish uplands i think that's a good thing so you have in in effect like quite a unique situation you've got a lot of knowledge pooled about deer particularly and how to manage them and this land that probably goes back a significant part of history how much do you feel of that has been listened to when it comes to the strategy and how to manage deer in the uplands on a government scale um, i uh, i think a government scale is probably quite challenging so again at an operational level at a practical level um those deer management group meetings are attended by nature scott who are our government agency and we have good dialogue with them um and then there is a disconnect somewhere in that machine between you know the, the the guys that come to our meetings the ladies that come to our meetings and the people that write press releases or come up with policy um and i think uh, i think i think the problem is when we talk about a deer management uh conflict in scotland when we talk about this deer problem or the deer issue or whatever everybody comes to places like this and talks about it whereas actually i don't think in the majority of these environments we have much of a deer issue because we generally have professionals employed with a primary objective, if not a sole objective, of managing that deer population. We have therefore lots of counting, lots of resource, whether that's equipment, people, time. You know, we have four people employed full time over this estate in, in deer management, in, in um, land management. So our ability to manage our deer well and understand our deer and react to problems because there'll always be changes uh between the the wildlife and the landscape and there'll always be you know peaks and troughs and mm. and things um but our ability to to act on that and and deliver is i think probably very good and again if you compare it to areas with smaller land holdings where it's not possible to employ professional wildlife managers um then it, it immediately becomes so much harder. If you look elsewhere into Europe and, and around the world, the, the emphasis, so much of what we deliver as deer stalkers, as deer managers in, in, the, in the uplands of the highlands becomes the responsibility of the state. And there are state biologists, there are state game wardens, and they are the people that are counting populations. They are the people that are setting cull targets. They are the people that are carrying out that, um, that background management. Mm. Not perhaps, you know, a lot of that culling is then done by recreational stalkers or, or hunters. Um, but here in Scotland, most of that is carried out by private, um, privately employed individuals. Um, so you're sort of, I don't know, therefore it's harder for the state to enact their vision, perhaps compared to if they were in control of the whole thing. But yeah. then they can't afford to be in control of the whole thing. Yeah. And the places that they do earn in Scotland, which are fairly significant, they're not really delivering on their vision there anyway. The densities of deer and their impact on our habitat are the subject of heated debate right now, not least because of their impact on tree planting targets. This has led to the Scottish Government calling for an increase in the annual cull by 100,000 deer a year. We'll be returning to the subject of deer later, but for now we are switching gears. 
from the largest land mammal to something a little smaller, but just as important. I am Jana Connolly. I am a research assistant in the farmland ecology department of the GWCT. I'm based at HQ and specialize in entomology, so insects and a lot of my project work has been based on pollinators, in particular bees. So we're specifically looking at the uplands, which I know is an area that, that you've spent a lot of time researching. Why are pollinators important for the uplands? I think a lot of people think of pollinators and they think of our crops and fruit trees and things that are important to us as humans, of which we interact less in the uplands. Why are they important in the uplands as well? Um, oh yeah, I think it's easy to get put a value on the pollinators that you can relate to the crops and things like that. But in the uplands, you've got a, you're a stronghold for a few different species that you don't really see in the same abundance um, in the rest of the UK. For example, heath, bumble, bumblebees, broken belted bilberry, and the northern whitetail. Um, you also have strongholds of garden bumblebees, um, which are um, important for kind of crop pollination. And so, in in terms in terms of the uplands, and I'm thinking I'm thinking plants up there, which require pollination, like all the other plants. There's there's obviously a, some crucial interaction between bees and other pollinators in the uplands as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so things like your bilberry bumblebee, they pollinate. Um, Bilberry, <laughs> you don't really see them without that. And um, similarly, your northern whitetail and your heath, they all pollinate um, your gorse and your heather and that kind of thing. And you won't get the kind of same prevalence in the health of your population of those kind of um, plants without, without cross-pollination provided by those bees. The decline in pollinators across the country has been well documented. Government statistics show a reduction of a fifth since the 1980s. Insects are the canary in the coal mine when it comes to changes in our ecosystems. Land use change is a ubiquitous issue uh, across the UK and moorland and unimproved grassland is no exception. Um, this has steadily declined in the extent since the 1940s. So um, that is your that is one factor um, and I've, I can't I can't try and address every factor that goes into this, but the other thing is obviously um, climate change and global warming, and that can, to some extent, explain um, the kind of the species that can be seen to be increasing in their range. Um, some species that uh, are spreading kind of up from the south of England, we've actually got um, tree bumblebees are a relatively new species to the UK. They're yet to be found in Scotland, but they are likely to be. Um, cashing in on the fact that things are kind of warming up and um, yeah so um, various pollinators butterflies as well are kind of some some of those the warmer climate can suit them but obviously a lot of bees um, that are specialized to kind of upland areas aren't going to be used to those kind of higher temperatures and also the other climatic um, changes that are going to be affecting the flowering times of their um, of the vegetation that they feed on. So are you, are you also going to see competition potentially between pollinators that are you you didn't historically find in these ranges with with very specialized pollinators that are already having problems with their, their population decline? 
Yeah, potentially. There's a lot of anecdotal um, evidence on kind of potential uh, yeah, competition between pollinators. Uh, honeybees are the big one that a lot of people talk about. You know, they're kind of commercially used and moved around um, and people are concerned that that's going to have that has an impact on the wild bee populations that you have and um, the amount of nectar and pollen that is available. Um, but yeah, so any any kind of change in the general dynamic in the species populations and biodiversity in an area could have an impact, but it's an area that I think probably needs a lot more research. Various bees are kind of more opportunistic than others. The bees that you've got really good strongholds of that are quite special to Scotland, a lot of them are really specialised to those higher altitudes. Um, so those are probably the ones that are going to be more affected by by warming of our country. Um, but then you've got things such as tree bumblebees, which are quite opportunistic. Your issue is that common bees um, are the ones that are and the ones that will more easily spread and kind of use use the opportunity of a warmer country. Uh, they're common for a reason. They are much more malleable in what they'll feed on. They're much more malleable in where they'll nest. Um, they're life cycle is potentially a lot more flexible to work around kind of the changing environment uh your concern lies with those rarer species that are really um habitat specific have those really um delicate relationships with with the world around them with their habitat um and as that changes those are the ones that you're going to lose for some species it may even be too late already um there comes a point with any population that um you can the numbers can be knocked down and they'll come back up quite rapidly but if you knock them down to a certain certain point they they're so sparse they're so far and few between um the the and they're so segmented that kind of regaining those healthy populations becomes a lot more challenging um, and eventually impossible. So, so how does Muirburn, which is a big land management tool in the uplands, play into polliner conservation, in particular bee conservation? On, on just off off the back of it, this idea of like burning the hills doesn't seem like it'd be very good for insects. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on on Muirburn, but um, what I do know is that. Um, it, it is, you know, it's a controlled measure that has been, like I say, it's been used historically, um, not just in Scotland, but in a lot of places across the world. And you have these strongholds of bees that have been there for, um, the, you know, as much time as Muirburn has been, if not a lot longer. So um, I think a drastic change in uh, the way we approach such topics um, needs to be done really carefully um, because you, you could potentially be off, um, offsetting the kind of balance that those bees currently exist in. Um, and like I say, you know, moorland and the way and Muirburn is a way of managing, managing the land for um, various activities that mean that it is a profitable and um, therefore viable um, landscape to maintain and to keep and kind of if you remove the ability to make money from these things um, you remove the incentive to, to to keep them and preserve them so you, so what you're saying is that the 
we have to be very careful about the rate of change of our land management practices for how that impacts insects. Yeah, I think if you're going to make massive changes, <laughs> do so with great caution. Um, and I think the most important thing to touch on here is to speak to the people with the boots on, their on the ground. You know, the people that have done this for generations um, haven't done so in a spiteful way, I, I would hope. And they, they're the ones that know what works. They're the ones that have seen um, the biodiversity on their land um, kind of change over time. And they know, hopefully, you know, their grandparents may know what it looked like in the kind of in its prime. One of the most visible changes we are seeing in our uplands is the shifts towards rewilding and regeneration. Pete Cairns is from Scotland's Big Picture, a body which campaigned for rewilding and takes the position that future balance will come from nature and not people. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Um, so rewilding for us is not about a single species. It's about it's about the, the, the dynamic living systems in which species live, including us, by the way. Um, so we, we do have a focus on certain species for different reasons, but rewilding is not about a lynx or a boar or a beaver or a bear or, or whatever it happens to be. Having said that, you know, one of the reasons that rewilding captures the public imagination, especially young people, is this is this notion that we can have a landscape that is richer in nature. Now, what does that look like? It means more species, a greater abundance and diversity of species. And yes, of course, it's the, the charismatic megafauna, as it were, that captures that, that imagination. But actually, when you think about it logically, what we should be devoting our energies and resources to are the insects. You know, what's going on beneath our feet? These are the building blocks that percolate up the food chain to the lynx, to the beaver, whatever. So that, again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ideology, there's, an, there's, an e there's a set of ecological principles at play, but then there's, from our point of view, the, 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 the aspiration to capture the public imagination. So you're, you're using the lynx and the beaver and the white-tailed eagle or whatever it happens to be as a, as a symbol. In the same way that if you think WWF have been using pandas for, for years, they do no work on pandas whatsoever, but it's, a, it's something that captures the, the, the imagination. But at an ecological level, we should be you know, putting a lot of more effort into the foundation. So it's about the system. I, I, I draw an analogy with a, I don't know, with a plane engine, for example. If a couple of rivets pop out of the wing, the plane will still fly. It's not great, but it'll fly. 20 more drop out and it starts to wobble a little bit. You know, The engine starts to falter and, it's, and then it comes a point where you're shedding so many components and it comes out of the sky we're flying along in a plane that's got a few rivets missing, maybe more than a few. It's not plunging out of the sky yet, but it's probably faltering. So, you know, we have to restore those components, all of those components, everything from wood ants to links, to make the plane fly as optimally as it can. We will hear more from Pete and his vision in the next episode on land use. But now we are joining Sarah as she dives a little deeper into the current management around predators and endangered bird species in the uplands. She travelled to a research farm in the Highlands to meet with Marlies Peake from the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. 
Here today we're on the what's called the Game and Wildlife Scottish Demonstration Farm and this is the extent of the farm here so it's termed as a hill edge farm and it's managed for the purpose of um, black-faced sheep and along with that is we also have the grazing rights on this large extent of moorland in this section over here um, which extends to about 10,000 hectares so during the summer months our sheep go onto the hill to act as what's called a tick mop for the purpose of grass mow management. I only just found out what a tick mop was the other day. Mm -hmm. How vital are tick mops when it comes to ground nesting birds? So pretty much they are the tick mops are a fundamental component of the management for grass moors. So of course the sheep are put up on the hill as this tick mop predominantly for the management of grouse. So the idea is your sheep go up, they're treated with an acaricide. On here we treat them with an acaricide called dissect and they are treated ideally every seven weeks. So the idea is when the sheep are moving through the moorland, mm -hmm. they pass over all the vegetation picking up those ticks and then those ticks die. So obviously that's great because then that means that there's a far fewer tick burden on those grouse chicks. But obviously if there are less ticks on the grouse chicks, that also works the same for your wader population as well. So effectively any ground nesting chicks, even the adults actually, if their tick burden is too high, they become incredibly weak and they can also die as well. And there's also this really, really bad um, disease called lalping ill, which can be passed, can affect sheep and um, grouse as well. So it's really, really important to try and minimize your tick populations as much as you can. Uh, the GWCT first took over this farm in 2014. So it was quite a while ago, um, but in terms of the research it's still relatively in its infancy stages. Um, so predominantly we've been spending an awful lot of time doing the, what we call the core monitoring. So that's monitoring your biodiversity, whether that be your habitats and all of your mammals and yes. your wading birds um, as the farm develops and improves. So we were kind of presented with a really interesting scenario here when it was taking on. So it was in a relatively undermanaged state, but also to a point relatively overgrazed with very poor infrastructure. And there wasn't an awful lot of um, um, arable farming going on here at all. But what we found is we had this huge wealth of biodiversity, particularly with the wader species, including the lapwing, curly and oyster catcher. So where we're in this really unique position where we now have to think, gosh, well, we have this farm, but we drastically need to improve it yeah. from an infrastructural basis and also from an economic and pro productivity basis. Because if it doesn't make money, you exactly. won't be able to keep this area of land anyway. Exactly, but we have to do that without negatively impacting this wealth these wealth of wader species that we have on the farm. So, and as um, I'm sure you're aware, um, agricultural intensification was one of the main impacts and reasons for these wader species yeah. declining. Exactly. So, but so so this is why it's been so important for us to manage and monitor these um, wading species. So we have this project that runs every year where we effectively monitor all of the nests of curly oyster catcher and lapwing to assess their fate whether they um, either hatch or fail right. so and in terms of the failure we have to monitor the failure side of things we try and put a camera trap on each nest where possible so you can capture any predation events but also we look at any agricultural damage abandonments so it's that has been really really important for us to understand the impacts of predator control here but obviously the predator control um, 
has enabled the population to, to grow exponentially. How come predators are causing such a problem? For anyone from the outside that doesn't know, you know, because yes. I, I always just think of predators as a natural part of the food chain and we need them. Yes. But um, why are you having to manage them, aside from concerns about the, the natural, the, the bird yes. populations here? Have the predator populations escalated? So, of course, predators play a completely integral and natural part of our ecosystems. Um, but obviously, the United Kingdom is one of those countries that has been hugely engineered over the last few hundred years. Um, our landscapes look completely different to what they used to historically. So particularly in terms of your agricultural advances, particularly after World War II, our landscape even changed more dramatically. So a lot of the land was put into farming and there was a huge increase in your, your diversification, uh, specialization of your agricultural practices. So that meant there was a lot of um, alterations to those natural habitats and removed a lot of um, the habitats that a lot of your non-prey species would utilize. But as a result, you have now created ideal habitats for a lot of your generalist species to thrive. So your foxes, corvids, mustelid species. And of course, as years have gone on, there's been slightly less predator control taking place. And I think now it's one of those things that is quite in the limelight and a lot of people didn't really understand predator control before yeah. and it, of course it, it has always been part of the management for these grass moors here and even from a farming perspective so without that predator control those uh, your livestock and particularly your birds of conservation concern would be negatively impacted um, so I think now it's kind of important that we try and emphasize the importance of predator control from almost like a scientific background because people need the evidence to understand why it's needed yes. and the benefits that they create. Do you think that people um, hear enough about the science behind it or, or do you think science is being listened to enough when it comes to the policies that get rolled out? I think it could definitely be improved but unfortunately in terms of predator control as a concept the general public are not for it at all because yeah. their understanding is, well, killing is bad. Yeah, literally. So <laughs> without really any understanding of why um, those killings are taking place. So even though we as a GWCT have provided a huge amount of evidence into the importance of predator control and what benefits it has, sometimes it falls on deaf ears, unfortunately, because that the almost the emotional feeling towards the kind of killing of these animals supersedes the scientific evidence, which it shouldn't, but unfortunately that to me seems to be the case of what is happening. It might be a little to do with the disconnect between, and we always say the disconnect between people and nature, but actually the disconnect between rural living and, and people. And, and I, I suppose being exposed to death in a way, like we, we don't have those small level butchers very often Absolutely. anymore. We're not familiar with seeing carcasses. We, you know, we don't necessarily have even the connection to the food on our table. So when it comes to the idea of removing wildlife that also we see all these lovely videos of charismatic species. We have such um, 
anthropomorphism and empathy towards them and I'm guilty of it I know the yes. algorithms target me yes. with all of these foxes and cute things doing that but we we don't necessarily understand the big picture anymore no and I think I think there's definitely things we can do to try and improve that but I also think just in the media in general um people do shy away from trying to show this kind almost the the harsh reality yeah. of the management that goes on because of that fear of this kind of negative connotations that come with it so sometimes as an industry we probably don't push enough i would say um because there is this fear of continued scrutiny and whether that will continue to negatively impact the the good that we're trying to do so it, you we have to be very mindful of um almost not shying away too much. Yeah, don't shy away, exactly. Not to shy away too much from it, but actually we do need to try and get that message across more than we currently are to show, right guys, yes, predator control might be something that it's not the, the nicest thing to think of, but actually without it, we are going to lose species, for example, like your curlew, um, which is um, a red list of species. And, and that kind of brings me kind of back to the, the habitat side of things. Everyone always says, habitat, 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 that's all you need to conserve these species that are in significant decline. But just to give you an example, so we're up here on a grouse moor, um, you will have huge amount, we have huge amounts of curlew and lapwing both on the hill and on the low ground and there's all the aspects of um, grass moor management that I've talked to you about and obviously there is perfect habitat for them here as well but then I guess you look at Ireland for example mm. it also has huge amounts of landscape like what we are in today which would be ideal habitat for the birds that we're speaking about yet let's use curlew as an example, there's only about a hundred pairs of them left, but that's also because a lot of the moors in Ireland, they're not managed grouse moors. So there is very, very limited predator control in Ireland. So that just shows you that maybe habitat isn't the absolutely key component to ensuring these um, wading bird populations that are in decline will improve. And so I think there is definitely it's not a coincidence that a lot of the waders we see today, particularly talking about your lapwing and curlew, are almost solely located either within or near to managed grouse moors. And that is because they provide the correct habitat and also there's that reduction in the predator species. And with, as I said previously, the GWCT have and many studies shown that predator control is one of the most impactful factors reducing the breeding success of ground nesting birds. Um, so there was one particular study that was done. So it was called um, the Upland Predation Project, which yeah. was based in Otterburn. And so this was conducted in 2000 to 2008, and they basically wanted to show, was there any difference in breeding success of ground nesting birds in areas that received predator control management versus areas that did not? And basically what they found is over this eight year period that there was a twofold increase in breeding success of gray partridge and red grouse. There was a threefold increase of lapwing, curlew, Medipipit populations, and there was actually a six-fold increase in the black grouse uh, breeding success. Then 
This area went unmanaged for the next 10 years and then the GWCT went back to do further bird surveys to see what had happened back in 2018. And what they found is actually black grouse and grey partridge had come, become completely locally extinct from the area. Wow. And the curly and lapwing productivity had reduced to up to 80%. So that just shows you what can happen and the negative consequence of what can happen if you remove predator control from an environment. And yes, people might say it's not, it's not a natural thing to do for us to manage the predators to that extent, but we now live in a system and environment where it's so overly engineered, we can't just leave it anymore. To understand the future of the uplands, we need to understand what people want and what trades we are willing to make. What is the balance between the needs of people, wildlife, climate change and broader biodiversity? Who determines what that landscape looks like? Next week, we will be exploring who owns the uplands and why is the way we use it changing? What will society and government desire from this landscape in the future? If you would like to contact us, ask us a question, or find out more, head over to www.thebritishuplands.com. The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production.